welcome to the seventh season of the Sad Sessions podcast. Today I have Phil Putnam with us on the show. Phil is currently the VP of Sales Enablement at Notified. A little background about Phil: He's worked in companies like Adobe, Live Fire, Sprinkler, and and more. So let's hear uh, from Phil about himself. So. Hey Phil, welcome on the show. Hi, <laughs> thanks so much for having me, and thanks for that great intro. Awesome. I I, I like gave a very short intro about you, and <laughs> you, know, there, you know, there's there's so much like more that we have discussed over like few past calls, and you know, mm-hmm. would love to know more about you and like how's your journey been into the SaaS before we dive onto the main topic of conversation, which mm-hmm. is about. Uh, let's call it like enablement 101, right? Like what sure. it is, what do you do in enablement? What's your yeah. current role? How CEOs or leadership should look at enablement when they're starting a new practice? Or if you're an enabler mm-hmm. who's listening and you've just started in a new role or you're, you know, just completed a year or two and wanting want to up-level your game or elevate your role mm-hmm. in your org, what do you do? What to like, you know, what practices should you follow? I think Phil has all the answers. So yeah, let's uh, <laughs> let's start with the intro and your journey in the SaaS field. I certainly have some answers. I'll give as many as I can. Um, yeah. So, well, you know, as far as my journey with SaaS, it really exemplifies one of my favorite things about this area of industry, which is that there are a lot of different pathways into it. And particularly at the time when I entered it, which was back in 2000, probably 11 or 12, So quite a while ago is when I I first entered the SaaS tech area. I entered tech overall in 2005. I worked for Apple Mm. in California. I live in America. I'm originally from Northern California and then New York City has been my home for the past 14 years. But I specifically entered SaaS because I was a musician. Honestly, I had a singer songwriter career and it never became my income. Mm. And so I, you know, I worked at Apple on the side when I was first starting my, my music career after college. And then I continued to work in tech or other forms of media. And, Mm. you know, I moved to New York in 2009 and after a couple of years there of doing mostly gig work, like music PR and stuff like that, I needed to get a fully adult job with a fully (laughs) adult salary. And um, this was around the time when a lot of SaaS tech startups were developing in New York specifically. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's actually a specific area of New York City in Manhattan that's uh, nicknamed Silicon Alley. Um, And it's it's kind of around Macy's. It's around the legendary Mm -hmm. Macy's on 34th Street and Broadway. A lot of a lot of affordable office space for small scrappy startups. So anyway, Sprinkler was the first startup that hired me at the time. They were a startup. Now they're you know one billion, maybe even two billion. I don't know exactly where their current value is, but I was employee thirty six at Sprinkler. Oh wow! And one of the main reasons why they I worked there is because they offered first of all, <laughs> but they understood that. There's a lot of overlap between the skill set of a person who can run a successful creative project, like producing and recording and releasing an album, mm-hmm. and somebody who can really do great project work in the context of technology. Mm-hmm. So they were hiring artists because we were available and affordable. Mm-hmm. And so that's really where I entered the SaaS tech world 
through Sprinkler. And it was your typical thrilling and insane boundaryless startup <laughs> experience at that time. But it gave me access to so many different types of learning and business and mentoring and huge clients like global brand names. So mm. I really was able to find my way with dealing with that level of clientele. Mm -hmm. And I got to do a lot of different types of work because, you know, mm -hmm. very early startup, there's a lot of yep. opportunity and there's not a lot of definition. Right. And so that was a, a really intense experience, both on the good side and the bad side. And I also learned that that early stage startup environment, not my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I like structure. That's, yeah, yeah. that's you know, where my, my best work comes out in structure. So mm. uh, after a few years at Sprinkler, I moved on to another startup and then another one shortly after that. And then, and that, that third one was Livefire. And two months after I started at Livefire, Adobe bought Livefire. Wow. So that's how I ended up working for Adobe. Mm -hmm. And Adobe is the second largest software company on earth. I mean, they make mm. Photoshop. So that's yep. mo how most people know Adobe. Hmm. I think it's something like 96% of images that everybody sees in the world every day are in some way touched by Photoshop. So it's, wow. it's a massive a impact on the way that I know, you know, that might've actually gone down with the rise of Instagram. I, I'm thinking of like, you know, marketing images rather than, hmm. but also, you know, Adobe has a, has a individual creator level version mm. of their products now called Adobe Express. So mm. anyway, massive impact on the way the world literally sees things. <clears throat> and again, I was there for five years, five and a half years, did a lot of different types of work there. Mm. And actually it was while I was at Adobe that I fully came to understand that enablement, excuse me, and specifically sales enablement and revenue enablement was a huge passion of mine and mm. was this really ideal context for the skills that I was strongest in and the ones mm -hmm. that brought me the greatest personal satisfaction. So that's really mm. how I found myself coming into the enablement world. Nice. That's an interesting journey and very crazy stack to know about Adobe and, you mm -hmm. know, diving into the topic like about enablement in your current role, right? Let's start off. Mm -hmm. We're talking about that, right? So your VP of sales enablement at Notified. So can you tell us mm -hmm. more about like, what's your, what does your job entail? What is enablement, right? And sure. what in your org, like, and what are some of the practices that you overlook? Yeah, sure. Well, a little bit about Notified to set some context. So yep. longer story shorter, we're a global SaaS tech company, primarily operating in the US, but we have international business in Europe and Asia as well. And we really focus on three key product lines, end-to-end -end technology infrastructure for public relations and investor relations departments for companies mm -hmm. of various sizes, and then also an experience event broadcast tool. So Let's use Adobe as an example again. Let's say that they they want to broadcast their annual customer summit, which happens in Las Vegas every year in March. Mm. They want to broadcast that virtually or give a hybrid experience to the people as well as making it possible to attend in person. Mm. Uh, Notified's experiences product can simulate the entire in-person conference experience uh, in a virtual space, it, it, including the lobby, the exhibition hall, the app registration, all of that. Mm. So, uh, so I specifically enable our sales organization globally. 
And so I'm, I'm the VP there. So I'm the top person in enablement at, at Notified. And I was brought in two years ago to really establish the practice and establish the business function. Mm -hmm. They were doing enablement activities, but it wasn't an actual business unit or, or a business operation yet. Mm -hmm. And I just happened to be a combination of a learning and behavior expert and also a very strong business leader. So it made me ideally suited to lead and establish a business function that focused on behavioral change, which is really mm -hmm. what enablement is. Yeah. If, if you're looking to define enablement, it really is the business function that provides the behavioral component of any business strategy and execution of that strategy. So mm. if you're a revenue leader, there's just certain goals you have to hit right? Mm. Well, the execution and the achievement of those goals is going to mm. be a combination of several factors. People's behavior is one of those critical factors. So that's right. really the core value that enablement brings to any business unit that it serves is that mm. we bring the people piece of the business strategy. And because success in any business today is still based on human behavior and right. human decision, Every mm. business strategy that's going to succeed has a behavioral component. Totally. Right. And you know, that, that reminds me of like my conversation with the CLO leader in my previous job, right? I was working with a company called Watfix and we used to be, I used to talk to a lot of CLOs or LND leaders in, in my role. Right. And mm -hmm. one of the leaders did mention that, and obviously Watfix deals in a lot of change management and yeah. space and obviously like behavioral impact or, you know, person behavior or human behavior is like one uh -huh. big aspect when we talk about change, right? Or change management, especially in enterprise companies. So yeah. uh, she mentioned this really one like nice thing, which is like always stay with me, right? You know, you always have to, whenever you're implementing anything new, that's always like people process and technology in that order, right? Like you always have to yeah. focus on people first. And then you have to focus on like, what's the process and what's the systems are going to be like. And the tech, the tech or the tools always come in the last, right? Like, and often yeah. like, a lot of people, you know, make that mistake where they focus a lot on tools first or they focus mm -hmm. a lot on the processes first, right? They don't, sure. like almost always nobody, you know, takes into account like, hey, at the end, it's the people who are going to be following the process or the people who are going to be using the tools. And yeah, you know, that's a really good point that you bring. Yeah. And there's a very simple business logic I apply to the, to the centering of people for, mm. as a pathway to your, your business success. Mm. And it's, it goes like this. If you ask yourself three questions, first question is, if I look at all the line items of cost mm. that it takes to run my business, what's the most expensive total, total line item? Mm. It's your people. It's salary. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Second question is, of the types of interactions that my business has with our buyers and our customers, which business asset conducts the highest value customer and buyer interactions? Mm. It's your people. Mm. The third question is, which of my business assets am I most at risk of losing every day? It's your people. Yep. So centering your people and their experience and what they can and cannot do as the core of your hard business strategy and pathway to results is not mm. just a nice idea. It's mm. not a nice to have. It's a hard business essential 
because your productivity, all the things that are going to actually help you gain revenue and gain profit are conducted and driven through your human workforce. Totally. Everybody should like put people at the forefront or at the tip of the spear and then they kind of determine like how the like let's say the process or the tools or the tech stack is going to flow follow yeah right? so yeah uh, the, uh, so you know and these are the same people that you enable phil right in mm-hmm. at notified and like you know you've spoken to like a lot of other companies and help them as well from our previous mm-hmm. conversations right so what what exactly are the practices that a company that is just starting out that their mm-hmm. enablement practice, right? What they should look out for, what are the must-haves, what are the yeah. things to avoid, and what are the easy common yeah. traps that people fall into? Absolutely. So there are three key things I'm going to talk about. The mm-hmm. first is to use enablement as it's intended to be used, like mm-hmm. use the tool for what it's designed to do. Mm-hmm. The second is get the infrastructure right. Mm-hmm. And the third is seek to understand the way that enablers think and and behave and operate and mm-hmm. seek to help them understand you as a as mm-hmm. a business unit leader so those are, I'll, I'll dig into each of those three things but those are the three things that really come to mind mm-hmm. so the first one is you know really use it as it's intended you know mm-hmm. enablement is no different from any other business function there are mm-hmm. things that it's designed to do and things that it's not designed to do. And mm-hmm. there are just the things by the nature of the way it's composed that make it you know, fit for. So the analogy I use is like, it's another tool in your toolbox of achieving mm-hmm. your, your business outcomes. Mm-hmm. And you, know, you don't use a hammer to cut a wire. Mm-hmm. You use wire cutters to cut a wire, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So this mm-hmm. is the concept, use the tool for what it's designed for. So a couple do's and don'ts on that. In terms of the do's, it's what I said earlier. You want to use your enablement practice to provide the behavioral component of your strategy and the execution of that strategy, Mm -hmm. right? That's what you want to use it for because that's what it's made for. Mm -hmm. Um, And I see a lot of organizations that don't do this. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's because they don't quite understand what enablement is or what it's what it's built for. There's mm-hmm. also seems to be a lot of confusion between the idea, the, the idea that people accept that mm. enablement is a cost center. So it doesn't directly generate revenue, right? It mm. just doesn't yeah. do that. People know that in their minds, but I still see a lot of, of revenue leaders that when it comes down to having to actually decide, am I getting mm. return on investment from my enablement practice? They default to assessing things by their ability to generate revenue. Mm. But enablement is a cost center. Mm. You know what else is a cost center? HR, marketing, mm. hiring, mm. You know, business units that are unquestioned and their existence and their value. Mm. Enablement has that same relationship to revenue. We mm. impact revenue behavior, but we don't directly right. generate it, right? Mm. That's the first thing is really just use it for what it's intended for and make mm. sure you, you keep yourself in line around what you expect from it because right. that's going to actually be the, the easiest and most effective path to getting from it what you need from it. Right. My don't 
on using enablement as it's designed is don't use it to enforce compliance. Hmm. Couple reasons for this. The first is that even if your enablement practice sits within your business unit, like, like mm-hmm. for example, I, I run a sales enablement practice. I actually am organized within the sales organization at Notified and I report directly to the chief of revenue. So mm-hmm. if that's your situation, your people or your enablement people still, they are not chartered to manage reps mm. and, and sales leaders, right? Mm. We're, not, we're not chartered to tell anybody what to do in terms of an authority standpoint. Mm. So, but oftentimes revenue leaders will, will put enablement in the position of being a point of compliance enforcement. That mm. is a huge mistake. Here's the reason why. As a revenue leader, you need to have enablement generate behavioral change. That's what it's designed for. Hmm. Enablement can't get people to change their behavior if the people don't trust enablement. Hmm. And whenever you establish something as the point of compliance and enforcement, it alters the relationship between Hmm. that unit and its audience. And so when you use enablement for compliance, you are effectively limiting the ability, you're adding friction, you're adding obstacles in terms of you getting the value from enablement that you need from it. Mm. Yeah. Like if it's a compliant, yeah. If it's a compliance thing, you need Mm. to use your sales leadership chain for that. And you need Mm. to be honest with yourself about that. Otherwise you're going to be making it harder for you to get what you need from enablement. Right. Right. And I think enablement customers internally are salespeople and typically salespeople only listen to their managers or their like, you know, super boss or something like that. I don't think they would listen to anybody else in that way. Right. So just forcing that mm-hmm. compliance, I'm sure that that doesn't work. That doesn't fly. Yeah. Yeah. So the second thing is to get the infrastructure right. Mm-hmm. Um, now, whether you are don't have your practice built already or you already have an enablement practice and you don't have the things in place that I'm going to say, don't worry, mm. you you can do this at any time, right? Mm. So as far as the dues of infrastructure, the first thing is you want to hire a leader of your enablement practice that is a combination of a solid business leader, like a business operator and a behavior and learning expert. Mm. Because this person's going to have to run a business function as Mm. well as lead your company when it comes to behavior and motivation. So they have to have both of those skill sets. And I Mm. really encourage you to look for that and probe that in your interview process. One of the key benefits of this is if you hire somebody with that profile, Mm. you can then direct them to hire people for their team with the same profile. So Mm. that's the first thing is really hire an enablement leader who can run a business as well as be a behavior and learning expert. Mm -hmm. The second thing is this, you must invest in scale and data via tech tools. Mm. My my top recommendations for these are either MindTickle or Seismic. Mm -hmm. So those are my recommendations for those tools. But the reason why you have to do this is first of all, in business sense, you will not get value and performance in mm. areas where you do not invest. So I, I have to say this as clearly as possible. 
you mm -hmm. must invest in a meaningful tech tool that mm -hmm. will allow you to scale active learning mm -hmm. and generate data about skills growth or else mm -hmm. you will not have a valuable enablement practice. There are so many organizations that make the mistake of believing that this is not true or believing mm -hmm. that this is optional. But what I'm gonna ask you as revenue leaders is, would you ever try to run your revenue operation without Salesforce? Mm. Just take a moment, yeah. think mm. about what would, it, what would it be like for you to mm. actually run your revenue operation globally without Salesforce or without a CRM, whether it's Salesforce right. or not. It doesn't take very long for you to start thinking <laughs> about how impossible that would be when you expect an enablement practice to run off of a SharePoint site or off of just a learning management system that isn't actually intended to scale learning experiences, mm -hmm. that's what you're doing. You're, mm -hmm. It's the same thing as expecting revenue to run without Salesforce and be great at it. Okay. So mm -hmm. it's just applying the same common sense business operation tactics to mm -hmm. enablement that you'd use for any other business unit, including your own. Here's the right. don'ts of infrastructure. Number one, do not mismatch the mandate that you give to your enablement team with the mm. level of authority that you provide them with. Mm. A classic example is you have a enablement leadership role that has a global mandate, but you have them reporting into a regional VP of sales. Mm. Terrible. Already, you are making it nearly impossible for them to fulfill their mandate without mm. a, a large amount of friction and added stress. Mm. If you want them to have global impact, you must give them global authority and a global reporting line. Mm. If you want them to have regional, regional authority and regional reporting. But I cannot count the number of organizations I see that still today make this mistake. You have to enable what you expect in the business structure. And this is a really important way that you can do that is matching the mandate with the level of authority. Mm. The second big don't on infrastructure, do not withhold a seat at the table from your enablement leader mm. and do not treat it like a reward that they have to earn or an achievement when they get it. Okay. It's the same thing. You, think about a car, an automobile. If it doesn't have fuel, it doesn't run. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Okay. If you mm. expect an enablement practice to have global impact, but you make it impossible for them to have access to global leaders and have a global voice mm. in the revenue strategy and operation, you are expecting a car to run without gasoline, without petrol. Mm. It just doesn't make any sense. But again, so many organizations make this mistake. And so many of them think that it's somehow good for their business and mm. a good leadership training environment for the enablement leader to have mm. to fight and earn a seat at the table. No. My number mm. one advice to any enablement leader who's in that position, you know what it is? Quit. <laughs> Leave that organization. I mean it. I literally mm. tell this to people. Do mm. not be in an environment where the basics that it takes to run your business practice are treated mm. like a bonus. Mm. You will not succeed there.
so that's my that's my do's and don'ts on infrastructure those are really really great points phil and you know obviously like one point about not having the right you know tools or systems in place would be you know say, you know building an army and then sending them to the battlefield without weapons right like you're uh, obviously <laughs> you're obviously going to lose right and you mentioned about yeah. your favorite tools being mindtickle and seismic fail i think you yeah. should take a look at gtm buddy again like a shameless plug yes oh my i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> no that's okay like again these tools have been in there for a while and a lot of yeah. people have their favorites like you know seismic high spot showpad mindtickle blah, yeah. blah blah and a lot of them when they see gtm buddy like they fall in love and i think yeah. we should change and, and we have changed that for so many people yeah <laughs> i think we should change and i i haven't seen it yet soon. so that's why yeah. i didn't recommend it so we definitely need to do a demo shortly after yeah. this <laughs> yeah but you yeah. you're right the point is regardless mm. of what tool you use ideally mm. it's gtm buddy or others mm. you have to have one right. and to expect yeah. to expect a practice to be able to succeed without the basics of infrastructure it's a it's a it's a false expectation mm. it doesn't have sound business reasoning and i don't fully understand why this is i have some ideas which i'll share in my next my third and final point mm -hmm. but i do notice that enablement tends to be one area where uh, revenue leaders who apply sound business reasoning and thinking to to mm -hmm. other business units they just for some reason struggle to apply it to enablement Mm. And I don't know if maybe it's because it's just a new way of thinking or because enablers tend to operate a bit differently than revenue leaders do usually, but there does seem to be this gap. Mm. And what I want to say is that, yeah, it's, it's, it's responsibility of the enabler to be able to help close that gap, but we can't do alone. It's mm. also the responsibility of the revenue leader. And right. again, revenue leader, enablement is a tool in your toolbox. So if you want to make sure the tool is valuable to you, you have to participate in the process mm. of making sure that it has the ability to do so. You know, it's not magic. None of us mm. work by magic and you have to invest in, in what you expect. And mm. so I think there's a lot of growth around the thinking about the, about the way that enablement is viewed and really viewing it as a business unit and as another tool in the toolbox. Hmm. The third area I'm going to talk about for do's and don'ts is really you got to seek to understand each other. Hmm. And one of the big reasons is because enablers tend to have a pretty specific personality profile and hmm. skill profile, and it doesn't always line up very well with revenue leaders. I'll use myself as an example. So I think I'm, I'm pretty typical among a lot of, a lot of uh, enablers as my personality goes. I am deeply empathetic. My emotional intelligence is off the charts to the point mm. where it almost makes my life difficult. Sometimes I, I am a caretaker first and foremost, mm. and I'm obsessed with communication. Mm. Now, these traits are also present in so many different revenue leaders that I've ever met. I think what makes the difference is that the context in which I came up or which most mm. enablers come up is very different than the mm. way that most sellers and sales leaders come up. And so one of the biggest shifts in the learning and enablement world in the past several years is that enablement teams often are now organized within the business line that they're serving, mm. which means that like, again, me as an example, I report to the CRO. Okay? Mm. So enablers tend to come from a background where they focus on helping 
They're mm. highly accommodating to requests and they are very much in touch with emotions and feelings as a business asset, right? Mm. That doesn't always line up and work for a lot of traditional revenue leaders. And so mm. you get these people in the room that probably have the same end goal, which mm. is to help improve and drive profit and revenue business mm. outcomes, right? But they're two totally different types of people and mm. they express their ideas and their plans and their points of view in different types of language. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's easy to think that it's the job of enablement to come over to the revenue side entirely. That's just not mm. reality. That's not the way relationships work. And that's not a partnership, right? Mm. A partnership is both sides seeking to understand each other. So let me share a couple guiding thoughts that can help mm. people who aren't enablement leaders understand enablement leaders. The first I've already said, we are prone to accommodation because we're helpers, right? Mm. The other thing is that most of us did not come up through a hard business line, right? Mm. So we don't really, don't, a lot of us, unless we've been taught by others, we're not the strongest business operators all the time. Mm. We may not be the best at speaking the language of the business, Mm. I just happened to be fortunate because I didn't come up through enablement in my whole career mm. and I was surrounded by really great business mentors. So I, I mm. absorbed all that from them, but I would say that I'm probably in more of the minority compared to my peers in that way. Mm. The other thing to know is that enablement in its current form really has only existed for the last five to seven years, maybe. Mm. So Enablers, we are mostly an industry of what I call functional immigrants. Mm. We journeyed into enablement from some other function for a variety of reasons. Mm. And us being prone to accommodate means we're prone to compromise and we may not be the best at establishing boundaries. Boundaries are another word for alignment. Mm. So this kind of brings us into my third and final point. Build that bridge of understanding, seek to understand each other in the ways that you're different and the ways mm. that you're the same. So my dues there are, first of all, teach your enablement leaders what you need them to know about business leadership, mm. right? I mean, ask them, get to know their skills first. But if you identify that, oh, they, they, they're great at behavior and, and, and learning and human you know, understanding humans, they don't have the, the, the business side, so I need to teach them because mm. that's gonna be how I get value from my enablement practice. Mm. And then also let them teach you, right? Allow them to tell you how they see things, allow mm. them to express their point of view and their thought processes and find like deliberately find value in those things. Mm. Don't just reject them because they're different than how you think. And mm. you think that your way is better because you're revenue, right? Mm. If it's going to be a partnership, make it a two-way street. That's my do's. My don'ts for building understanding is do not punish them for how they are different than you. Mm. Okay? The second don't is do not judge their value based on revenue generation, even mm. on a subconscious level. And this goes back to where I started. Right. I think that ideologically, very few people are going to actually say, I expect enablement, which is a cost center, to mm. directly generate revenue. 
right? Most people don't need to be convinced of that because enablement doesn't have revenue generating functions in it. Mm. But I do think that the subtext of a lot of the ways that that in, that revenue leaders operate still defaults to mm. assessing things by generation of revenue. And so there is always going to come several points in time every year where a revenue leader is going to ask themselves, is my enablement practice worth it? Mm. Am I getting what I need from it? And what I want to ask of you as revenue leaders who are listening is in those moments, be intellectually honest with yourself mm. and remind yourself, I'm assessing a cost center. I'm not assessing a revenue generating function. And therefore the lens and the, the judgments that I apply to this mm. must be those that are applied to a cost center. The reason why you should do this, why it's valuable to you as a revenue leader is because if you judge enablement through criteria of revenue generation, you will, mm. you absolutely will view your enablement practice as insufficient and you mm. might be prone to removing it or reducing it, but you'll be taking away something that's super valuable to you. The mm. problem isn't necessarily the value that enablement is giving you. The problem in that scenario is how you're viewing it. So for revenue leaders to properly assess the value of enablement, you really do have to go against some of your natural inclinations, like the world that you normally live in, you have mm. to think differently. And there's nobody better to teach you how to think like that than your enablement leader. Right. So that those are so many great points. Well, and that's like, you know, you're enabling in some way the revenue leaders themselves on to understanding like, hey, this is how you should see my efforts or as an enablement practitioner, this is how I should be judged or this is how I should be, you know, be or these are the things that I should be accountable for and not like the ones that you are thinking as, yeah. as a revenue leader, leader right? Yeah. So that, that's a really tough sell where you have to sell yeah, yeah, you have to be your own critic, but from somebody else's point of view, right? So yeah, oh yeah. Here's the other thing. I want to. I actually want to say this too because this is an important thing to understand the way enablers think, and also mm. to know how to get value out of them. Excuse mm. me. Um, enablers, <laughs> because of the way that we are usually viewed and treated by our mm. business line leaders, we typically live in a mindset of constantly defending our right to exist. Mm. Prove your value, prove your value, prove your value, mm. quantify your value, quantify your value, keep your job, save your job, give me the numbers, right? Mm. That puts us primarily in a defensive posture. It doesn't put us in an offensive posture. And it that defensiveness shows up in our work. So oftentimes I will hear revenue leaders complain about their enablement leaders and say, they're teaching us how to survive. They're not teaching mm. us how to win. That's an expression of defensive thinking. Right. Or they'll say, you know, they're too cautious. That's an expression of defensive thinking. Mm. So I want revenue leaders to ask themselves, am I, am I contributing to an environment where enablers have to stay in a defensive posture, mm. right? Am I actually in an environment where I am under investing and over expecting 
because that is the, a number one way to generate an environment where your enablement team is going to be in a defensive posture. Mm. And when anyone ever is in a defensive posture, just trying to keep their job and prove their value and justify their right to exist, the mm. work they're going to give you is going to be subpar. It will always be less than what they could give you because mm. a certain portion of their energy and their attention is dedicated to their survival rather than dedicated to your success. Mm. The, the most effective enablement practices that I ever see are the ones where the business unit leaders make it as easy as possible mm -hmm. for the enablement team to be seen as valuable and deliver the absolute best work they can. So th that responsibility is on the business line leader mm. to generate an environment where the enablement team can work from an offensive posture, because that's mm. where you want a revenue team working from. You don't want them just trying to survive. You right. want them active, proactive, moving in the market, leading the way, being offensive. Mm. And so the revenue leadership absolutely has a responsibility in mm. making it possible for the enablement to think and behave proactively as well. Nice. And I think, and then do you think like when enablement, like practitioners are put, like, you know, put on the offensive, that's where they can actually drive like business impact as well. Right. Like, I think they would be in a position to drive business impact. Yeah. And right? yeah. And, you know, also I now here's the thing for me personally, I love revenue leaders. I am in mm. awe of sellers <laughs> and, and salespeople. I really am. I yeah. also, I wouldn't have a paycheck without them. Mm. So, right. and I, I love conversation and I love disagreement, but also I've de deliberately cultivated that kind of boldness, particularly over the last couple of years, as I've become an executive, just because that's what the business needs from me. They need mm. me to speak up. They need me to have a point of view. And also my mm. team, I can't give my team a great experience and protect their work-life balance if I don't speak up and maintain boundaries. Mm. But you know, not a lot of enablement leaders are at that place or not mm. every enablement leader is at that place. And you know, some of us are just scared of revenue leaders. Honestly, some, <laughs> some, some of you all are scary. And mm. uh, again, it's to the revenue leaders benefit to your advantage to make it as easy as possible for you to use that enablement tool for what it's designed for. Mm. And if you're cultivating a relationship with your enablement team where they're afraid of you and where you make mm. it difficult for them to disagree with you, mm. you're just limiting the value you can get from one of the tools in your toolbox. So it just, it doesn't serve you as a mm. revenue leader to, to make it difficult for your enablement team to serve you. Got it, got it. No, that that makes sense and i i don't know that we are on at the top of the hour so uh, mm -hmm. let's segue into like those are again those are phenomenal insights and for anybody yeah. who's just either planning to create an enablement practice or just created a new enablement practice or you know enablement practitioners who you know want to up level or elevate their role in your their org like Phil has some amazing insights like we just discussed, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. uh, great. So we just, uh, before we end this, like I, I would like to ask you like three lightning round questions, right? Sure. And you yeah. have to answer like whatever's on top of your mind very quickly and in short. Okay. 
So yeah, the number one. So what is the one fundamental change that you're making in your job in 2023? I am pivoting from spending time on the questions of what do they know and what should they be doing? Mm. And I'm spending more time answering the questions of what are they capable of and what are they actually doing? Nice. That's, that's a very interesting change. On to the second one. So what's the one thing that has helped you shorten your learning curve? Honestly, television. <laughs> Seriously. I I am I will I am shameless. I will learn anything from anywhere. And I mm. learn so much from television. The other mm. thing is I love watching television and it's super relaxing for me. And I have to be deliberate about having a portion of every day where mm. I, my mind is as rested as possible. And so watching television helps me just relax mentally. Nice, nice. That's interesting. And I don't know, the last time since like all the OTT platforms have come out, I don't honestly remember the last time I've actually watched the actual television. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, and the third and the last one. So what do you know about your work now that you wish you would have known when you first started? That the most vital pathway to all business success is conversation. Hmm. Everything it's gets decided in a conversation, Yeah, you know, and also everything is done through collaboration. No business mm. unit succeeds on its own. No mm. one individual succeeds on their own. Mm. And more specifically, I would have just, I would have just, I have conversations quickly now because I'm not afraid. Mm. I would have spent less time being afraid and more time having conversations mm. quickly. That's what I wish. That's what I wish I had known earlier. Yeah. No, that, that I think there's that saying, right? Like if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, like go with the team, right? So obviously yeah. collaboration is the key. But yeah, again, thanks a lot, Phil, for mm -hmm. your time and sharing all these amazing insights with us. I'm going to include your LinkedIn URL in the description for this episode. So Wonderful. if anybody like who wants to connect with you, they can just ping you on LinkedIn. I'm very, I'm sure. Yeah. Like, and I know that you are active, very much active there. I think we got connected on LinkedIn. So yeah, I did. think people would love to like connect with you there. Yeah. LinkedIn is the best place to find me. Also, I'm available as a coach or also I do group sessions with organizations. So if you want to dig in further to in establishing enablement practices or how you can grow as a revenue leader or enablement leader yourself, just drop me a line on LinkedIn. Perfect. Couldn't recommend Phil enough to oh, have a chat you. with him about enablement. So oh, like, yeah, feel free to ping Phil. Thanks so much. 